When I was in school, I had a professor who gave me an assignment. He said, you have a two-page paper, and I want you to write on the intentions of Jesus using only the four Gospels. So I spent time sifting through the four Gospels, digging through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I came up with an elaborate outline for a two-page paper. Things like Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, shifting religious paradigms of the present and providing and lavishing hope on his people for the future. And then one night I was thinking before bed and I realized I had missed a key part of everything. It influenced everything I said and it wasn't necessarily missing, but it wasn't written large. And that was this, that Jesus came to suffer and to die. Indeed, the professor said afterward, if you were gonna boil it down to one sentence, you could do it that way. And you could do a lot worse for that paper. My failure to recognize that suffering, I think is an indication of the great discomfort we feel when it comes to suffering. When we're pressed down by the weight of suffering, both in the world and in ourselves, we crumble under that weight. We're divided. Yes, our churches and communities are divided, but even our very hearts and minds are divided. For some of us, this division looks like doing whatever we can to avoid suffering. We might say, remove this cup from me to God, but we try and remove it ourselves to get away from the pressure we feel. We understand the painful weight of suffering, and so we'd rather compromise, slide into sin, deconstruct, and leave the Lord behind. For others of us, this division looks like attempts to deaden our hearts and minds to avoid the pain. We might pray, your will be done, but we don't truly acknowledge the pain we're actually feeling. We keep it locked up away deep inside. And so we grow cold, apathetic to all around us, and grow cold to God himself. Who can endure suffering? And indeed, we need somebody to endure suffering. For who can be the perfect, unblemished, undivided sacrifice? Our Savior Jesus faced the fullness of suffering and remain undivided, wholehearted, full, unblemished, fully God and fully man. After supper in the hymn, Jesus and his disciples ascended the Mount of Olives to the place called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means in Hebrew, oil press. It's a reference to the practice of squeezing oil or squeezing olives to make oil. And in the pr process of pressing, first there was a great millstone that was used to grind the olives into a pulp. And then the pulp was collected in woven baskets and pressed once again to make the olive oil with huge stone weights. And it's in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the oil press, that the weight of suffering begins to press down on our Savior. He's pressed by the great and heavy weight of the undeserved suffering that's, undeserved suffering that's coming on him, the suffering that lays ahead. He was not only pressed by the knowledge of mental, physical, emotional torment, his body and mind would endure. He was not only pressed by the impending betrayal, denial, and abandonment of his disciples, but he was pressed by the incalculable weight of our sin resting on his shoulders. And the certainty that soon, very soon, he would be separated from his heavenly Father, whom he had loved from eternity past. Yet Jesus Christ stood firm in suffering. He remained undivided, wholehearted, he does not flee, but he walks forward to meet it. Yet he does not shut off his emotions, but he feels the fullness of the impending pain 
Tonight we reflect on his firm, undivided will in the midst of suffering for us through the words of his prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. First he begins, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus does not deaden himself to the pain of suffering. He prays honestly that the Lord, if possible, would do this another way. And well might he pray that, for he knows the cup that awaits him. It is the cup of God's wrath. This image of a cup appears throughout the Bible as punishment for humanity's sin and evil. This is the cup that we deserve, having poured it for ourselves, for our own evil, for our evil deeds and for our sin, our disobedience. And this cup began not in Gethsemane, but in another garden, in Eden. In the state of innocence, Adam and Eve chose to be like God. And so they sinned and fell, and so punishment soon followed. And the sweat which appears in Genesis 3 as part of the curse appears here in Luke's account on our Savior's brow during his great garden test on his way to the cross. And though Adam was innocent, Christ must act with full knowledge of what's to come and stand firm and remain unblemished. And like Adam and like us, Jesus is fully human. He knows what it means to feel pain. And yet he knows without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Indeed, while he ate the bread and drank the cup with his disciples at the Last Supper, as we have done tonight, he knew soon he would drink the cup of God's wrath and cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so in honest agony, he asks for the cup to be removed, not to doom us in our sin, but to spare himself the sheer torment and suffering and separation from the Father. As Dutch theologian Simon de Graaf writes, if ever there was a man who thirsted for life or ties with this entire world for a taste of God's loving kindness in all of it, it was he. Death with its darkness and abandonment was so foreign to him that he was aghast at such horror and very troubled. Jesus did not live a foot above the ground, hovering over all of our earthly cares and pain. He experienced extreme hunger and thirst, exhaustion, deep grief, tears, weeping. It was truly as the prophet Isaiah said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And as we are pressed by suffering for his name, we see his undivided suffering for us. And as we are tempted to deaden our hearts, we see his fully alive in the face of his suffering for you and I. And his prayer goes on, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. First, he's prayed honestly, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But now he prays humbly, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here, the second Adam, in the second Adam, we see the reverse of the first Adam. For the first Adam said, not thy will, but mine be done. Here is the reverse of everyone else we see around Jesus. The reverse of the Pharisees, whom, as we read, feared man and man's will over God and his will, mistakenly thinking that by remaining in power, their will could be done on earth. This is the reverse of the disciples, who, as we read, desired greatness, rule, their will to be done, to whom he says, yet I am among you as one who serves. 
Here is the reverse of the future departure of the same disciples, fleeing when suffering begins to press down at Jesus' arrest. The reverse of the Apostle Peter's violent attempts to alleviate suffering with a sword. And the reverse of Peter's fearful denials. And here is the reverse of our own hearts, which every day say to God, not thy will, but mine be done. Jesus came down from heaven not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent him. Indeed, in the Apostle John's account of Peter's act of aggression, Jesus rebukes him and says, Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? In Luke 22:37, he said to his disciples, For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus has lived his life in preparation for this moment. Time does not permit for me to go through the number of references he makes and the number of preparations he takes. But something very simple is where he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Luke tells us in chapter 21 that every night that week, Jesus went out to the Garden, to the Mount of Olives. And in Luke 22, it says that it was his habit, his custom. He knew Judas would find him there. And he did not flee like Jonah bound on a ship for Tarshish because he knew he needed to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth for you and for me. His very movement to Gethsemane is movement to the cross. It's the first stage of that pressing down of the olives in preparation for olive oil. In the words of Scottish minister James Philip, he carried the war into the enemy's camp. Nothing was lacking in his obedience. He was true even to his own words in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus came to earth to bring God's kingdom and do God's will, which he knew meant his own suffering and death. With his honesty and prayer comes in equal measure his humility. And thus he enters undivided into agony, the perfect unblemished sacrifice for us. Praying with his face to the ground, sweat like great drops of blood falling from him. Like the olives under the first press beginning to bleed, anticipating his being beaten and scourged to a bloody pulp. Truly Isaiah writes, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we are pressed by his sufferings, our sufferings in his name, we see his undivided suffering for us. As we are tempted to flee, we see his face set towards the cross for us, doing the very thing we could not do. I'm reminded of question 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks the question, why does the Apostles' Creed add the phrase, he descended into hell? And it answers it this way. To assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering and speaking anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Christ suffered unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul for you and for me, and he did so willingly. Because he himself suffered for us, he is able to help us who suffer. 
for our suffering is only temporal and his undivided spirit is with us and we have a promise of a future hope. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian who suffered and died at the hands of his own countrymen in Germany in the Second World War, he said this, only the suffering God can help and our God truly has suffered in the person of Jesus Christ. There's another scene of anguish that takes place at the Mount of Olives in the Bible. It's when King David in the Old Testament must flee from Absalom, his son, who's betrayed him, who's tried to take the kingdom for himself. And so David flees and goes up the Mount of Olives and weeps as he leaves. And he pens the words, he writes the words of Psalm 3 while fleeing from him, and they say this, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Both an honest and a humble psalm penned by David. Like David, our Lord's foes rose up against him. Someone close to him betrayed him. But Jesus, David's son, yet David's Lord, went willingly into the hands of his betrayer up the Mount of Olives. David and we are answered from God's holy hill when Jesus faced silence. He faced separation, not on the holy hill, but on the hill called Golgotha. We can say, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, because Jesus descended into the death that we deserve. We can say with David, salvation belongs to the Lord because Christ, our Passover lamb, was led to the slaughter, whose blood when pressed was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. The fountain prophesied by Zechariah has been opened to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as Jesus is pressed in the garden, looking toward his greater suffering on the cross, he remains whole, undivided, putting his human will in submission to the Father, being the perfect sacrifice that we could not be, doing what we could not do for something we ourselves had done. He prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. May we reflect on that prayer and the sufferings of the Lord on our behalf this Holy Week. In our own present suffering, in the suffering we see in the world, in our own sin and the sin we see around us. As we wait, just like his first disciples, for the great unexpected and undeserved joy of the resurrection.